So welcome to Element, if you're new. Uh, there are Bibles in the back. If you don't own one, you can have one. If you forgot one, you can use one. There are sermon notes on all the communion tables throughout the room. They look like this. On the inside, you'll get some notes to go deeper into what we're talking about, as well as some questions to ask one another. Hopefully go deeper as well. If you have a smartphone, you can download an app. It is called Uversion. Click on uh, More and then Events and Uversion. It will come up by GPS in your smartphone. You'll get sermon notes, verses, questions, announcements, everything that goes with today's message. My name is Aaron. I'm one of the pastors here. Why don't you stand with me for the reading of God's Word? Uh, this is Ruth, chapter 4, verses 18 through 22. It's going to sound to you like I'm reading the phone book, but this is actually the last verses in the book of Ruth. And this is what it says. Now, these are the generations of Perez. Perez fathered Hezron. Hezron fathered Ram. Ram fathered Aminadab. Aminadab fathered Nashon. Nashon fathered Salmon. Salmon fathered Boaz. Boaz fathered Obed. Obed fathered Jesse. And Jesse fathered David. Uh, let's pray. Father, this morning, I ask that we'd be a people who understand your providence and your goodness, especially in situations that we don't understand and can't see the backside to. I ask that today you would lead us in ways of great grace and understanding who you are so that we would be able to be a people who speak of the great hope that you have provided because you are good and you are holy and true and right and we long to live in that goodness that you provide for us. Amen. Have a seat. All right, so we are going to finish the main narrative of the book of Ruth today. This is Ruth week 12. Uh, next week, we're going to do a nice little overview of the book of Ruth. I'm going to call it gleanings from the book of Ruth. Have you been here? Gleanings. Oh, man. man I'm telling you. Now, today, is, it's, it's turned out a little bit different than I thought it was going to from the place of which I originally wrote it. Uh, and, that, and that's because this year... In the course of this year, I have had five people who are connected to me in one way or another that I know of have either attempted or committed suicide. And this today is, today is going to be, and I don't just want to say serious because I think even when we laugh, we can be serious about our laughter. I think today is going to be a little more somber. So offer me a little bit of grace today as we walk through some of this because I think we can understand better today through the end of this, the gospel, and how we can speak hope into one another's lives. When I was going through different books and, and sermons and commentaries stuff about the book of Ruth, I like what one guy said. I can't remember who it was, but they, but they said the overarching theme of Ruth is that nothing is wasted. Now, come from my perspective, always the overarching thing of anything in the Bible is Jesus, but Jesus doesn't allow anything in our lives to be wasted, uh, no, no matter what what comes into it, God will use it for his glory and our good. This guy likened it to Eskimos, which apparently it's no longer PC to say the word Eskimo anymore. My, my spell checker even redlined it and said, you can't say Eskimos. I'm like, you're a dumb computer. Uh, who cares? You know? There there are two types of Eskimos. They're Inuit and Yupik, and all Inuit are Eskimos, but not all Eskimos are Inuit. I, I don't know. Anyway, however you say it, Eskimos, Inuit, whatever. When, when they kill like a seal or a whale, well, they will use every part of it, from the fat to the skin to the bones to every bit of meat. Nothing in it gets wasted. And so this commentator says that you know God's story over our lives and redemption means that nothing that we have ever gone through is wasted. Uh, and I take that to mean that our lives aren't like a smorgasbord where God goes through and he's like, I'll take some of this, some of that. Oh, I didn't really like that. So if we're to forget that. It's that no matter what life circumstance you have had, God can use it for his glory and our good. Every circumstance, even every dumb decision you have ever made, God can bring that back about for his glory. Even the heartache that you might even now be experiencing is something that God can bring about for his, our good and his glory. Again, we may not understand how it's all going to work out. We may not understand exactly what God is doing, but when we surrender everything to him, Jesus does a miracle. 
He does a miracle. In Romans 8.28, it says, We know that for those who love God, all things work together for good for those who are called according to His purpose. That doesn't mean that there aren't consequences to our actions. There's not pain from things that we do. But that God will, won't let anything that happens in our lives in the end not work out to some type of good. Nothing is wasted. And Paul doesn't say all things are good. He says that God will make all things into something good. And even further than that, it says God will take and He actually creates good from those bad decisions. And how does that work? Well, how that works is kind of the story of the book of Ruth. The book of Ruth all starts all the way back in the book of Genesis. And you have this guy, and his name is Lot. He's a nephew of this guy named Abraham. And he decides at one point he is going to leave fellowship with Abraham. And he leaves and he goes to this place called Sodom. And when he gets to this place called Sodom, he puts himself into that culture and begins to live just like the culture that is there. God decides, I'm going to get rid of that place called Sodom because they are destroying people. And so Abraham then starts to pray to God. He intercedes for on his nephew's behalf and says, please just save Lot and his family. So God sent some angels in there. And they literally have to drag Lot and his family kicking and screaming out of this place. And for us in our lives, that's a lot of times it's like us or other people around us when we see them in some type of sin or doing something horrible and you confront them and talk to them about it, a lot of times they will look at you and lash out at you for trying to help them. But these angels start pulling them out. Lot's wife is like, no, I want to go back. And she ends up dying in the process. Eventually you get to this place where Lot and his two daughters end up living in a cave. And yes, it's as bad as you can imagine, living in, in a cave. These girls are raised in this place called Sodom. They have really no self-worth because at one point their dad tries to offer them up to a mob to rape them. So how does that do for your self-worth? They decide in the end to get their dad drunk and have sex with him so they can conceive and have children because they want to carry on their family name, which essentially they want male babies to grow up so they can have someone to take care of them when they get older because their dad's not going to do it. Now, they should have sought outside counsel, but again, they're living in a cave. There's no one around us because if you seek counsel for someone and say, hey, this is my plan. What do you think? Everybody should say, that's a bad plan. You need to go find a different plan. Don't have sex with your dad. So one does it with their dad one night. The other does it with their dad the next night. They have babies, one of which is named Moab. Moab becomes the ancestor of the Moabites. And as the Moabites grow and they reproduce, they end up hating the nation of Israel. And they are constantly attacking Israel. And Israel then turns around and attacks them. And when you get to the book of Ruth, what you find is that Ruth is a Moabite. She's coming out of this culture. And God is going to bring something good and use her because eventually she becomes the ancestor to his own son, Jesus. Sometimes we don't even see the end of what God is going to do through some horrible circumstance in our life. But God will always bring about something good. God brings good out of the worst decisions. Ruth and Boaz have a, have a baby named Obed. And you read in chapter 4, verse 22, Obed fathered Jesse and Jesse fathered David. David is King David. Again, the ancestor of Jesus. The son that Ruth bore, the Moabite woman who probably wouldn't be accepted in Israel under any but the most bizarre circumstances, becomes the woman who gives birth to the grandfather of King David. She becomes foundational in this country who hated Moabites, a Moabite woman. That 
is good news. And that's what God does. God, a lot of times, will even take our worst decisions in our lives and use those as the mechanism of our salvation. It's kind of like a vaccine. When you take a vaccine, it's it's a disease you want to avoid, and they inject it into you, and your body's develop immunities, so the thing that could kill you actually makes you stronger. That's not an invitation to go out and do a bunch of stupid things in your life. But sometimes we will get so crippled by shame and guilt that we have all these feelings of unworthiness and we never move into the place that God has for us. And we must be a people who understand what God has done. Jesus takes our sin. Jesus takes our shame and he redefines it into something new. We get to be his child. We get to be adopted into his family. And this is why in the book of Ruth, Ruth will go through what is called an ascent. She moves forward and upwards throughout the text. Uh, the words the writer uses, he continually calls her the Moabite, the Moabite, the Moabite, so you remember who she is, but there is this ascent. In Ruth chapter 2, verse 10, she talks to Boaz for the first time, and she says, Why have I found favor in your eyes that you should take notice of me since I am a foreigner? Now, the word foreigner there, it means stranger. It could even mean the word harlot. In Hebrew, it's a very demeaning term. It's this word called no cree. And, and, and it's a way for someone to say, I have less than no worth. And then after she talks to Boaz, she experiences some of his kindness. Chapter 2, verse 13, Ruth then says, I have found favor in your eyes, my Lord, for you have comforted me and spoke kindly to your servant, though I am not one of your servants. Now the word there, just three verses later that she uses for servant, is this word called shifka. It's a slightly elevated form of no cree. And so you see something's kind of happening in her heart. You get to Ruth chapter 3, verse 9. She talks to Boaz again after this budding love story starts taking place. And she says, I am Ruth, your servant. Spread your wings over your servant, for you are a redeemer. Now, the word here for servant is the word ama. Ama, and it means and it means handmaid. Some translations will even say handmaid, and it means a young woman of marriageable age. It's like potential and hope and possibility. It is very unlike no Cree or Shifka. And then you get to Ruth four thirteen, and it says, "So Boaz took Ruth, and she became his wife." The word there for wife is the word asha, and it is one of the highest esteemed words in the Bible. It's what Eve is first called in the book of Genesis. Ruth, by God's grace, has been redeemed and is someone of worth and value. You see this rising story of what God does in redemption. It has a happy ending because the narrative is one of ascent and not descent. It means whatever choices we have made, whatever choices others have made and forced upon us that may have harmed us, with God's strength, we can become renewed and redeemed because God won't let anything go to waste. Now, the day that I was writing this message, I showed up to Element and I found this note on the door right here. It says, is life even worth living. I wrote a blog uh, response to it, and I also printed my reply, and I stuck it on the door because they didn't hang around for the answer. But I, I think this is so timely, because it's a lot like Naomi's response in the book of Ruth, after she loses her husband and her kids. She returns to the country of Israel, and the ladies are like, hey, Naomi, and Naomi means pleasant and sweet. And so she says in Ruth 1.20, don't call me Naomi, call me Mara, which means bitter, for the Almighty has dealt very bitterly with me. I went away full, and the Lord has brought me back empty. Why call me Naomi when the Lord has testified against me and the Almighty has brought calamity upon me? Sounds a lot like the note on the door. Is life worth living? I'm thinking, oh, did Naomi show up, or Mara, did she show up to Element? 
And, and please don't think that I see every note that gets attached to our doors because I don't. Most of the time I'm oblivious. Uh, sometimes I don't even look because sometimes it's other churches put things on our doors or it's a lot of times it's really just crazy people ranting about, oh, the church is evil or God's judgment or the end times or a lot of verses taken out of context and a whole lot of gibberish. I, you shouldn't laugh, but I do sometimes. I should put them in a notebook one day and just say, here, this is amazing. But anyway. Every once in a while, though, it's something like this. And I don't know what drew me to it, because most times I just ignore it. And I, I probably God's Spirit, probably going through the book of Ruth. And I was really sad when I read that. Is life even worth living? Think of the little girl that just took her life a week and a half ago in our community. And if you don't know me well enough, I have like these really deep, seated, rooted issues in my life. And my mind immediately starts to race with all these questions. Or are they asking me? Do I, I need to answer that? Because I have this thing where I feel like I have to answer everybody's question all the time. If you have a question, I will figure out the answer. It's like I'm kind of nutty like that. And then I think, well, are they asking the church as a whole? Or are, are they asking God? And that's why they taped it there. Kind of like when kids send letters to Santa and they're all Santa and they put it, put it in the mail. It's like, where's it supposed to go? I guess I'll question to God. I'll stick it on the church door. Is, is that what this is supposed to be? And I wonder if the reason they didn't stick around for the answer. Like, do they think I'm not nice enough? Again, I, I got my issues. Okay, I got, I got a lot of issues. I wonder, is it a homeless person? And I wonder, well, where would a homeless person get paper and pen and tape to stick it to the door? Okay, okay I got my issues. But my first and natural inclination is to want to answer the question. I want to find that person, look them in the face. And this is why it makes it into the message, because hopefully you're here. And the resounding answer is yes. Yes. Life is worth living. There's different ways I would answer this question depending on how old the person was or what circumstances they were going through in their life. But I hope today maybe we could take a little step back and see this in the light of Ruth and see it logically with some emotion involved, but also the reality behind the question, is life worth living? See, the the word worth means to have value. As an adjective, it means important enough to justify. Is somebody's life important enough to justify? For Naomi, in the book of Ruth, it looks like the answer would be no. Call me bitter. My husband, my kids have died. Everything's been taken away from me. For Ruth, it looks like the answer might have actually been no, because she called herself a no-cree and a shifka. Well, well, that's got to be no, but redemption turns her into a person of value and worth, turns her into an isha. See, according to the scriptures, the answer to life being worthy is always a resounding yes. It is always yes. And this is life both born and unborn, in case you were wondering. Life isn't about convenience. Life isn't about the worth that other people say that we have. It's about the worth that God says that we have. We are told that God made mankind in his image, and that is what gives us our worth. We have worth because God says we have worth. Open your Bibles to Matthew chapter 6. Matthew chapter 6, Jesus deals with some issues surrounding worry and being anxious and being scared that maybe God doesn't look out for us. And so he answers this kind of in a roundabout way in Matthew chapter 6, starting in verse 25. He says this, Therefore I tell you, do not be anxious about your life, what you will eat or what you will drink, nor about your body, what you will put on. Is not life more than food and the body more than clothing? Look at the birds of the air. They neither sow nor reap nor gather into barns, and yet your heavenly Father feeds them. Are you not of more value than they? The worth that we have is assigned to us by God, and that means life is worth living. I told Michelle G. when I was talking about this thing, because I have her proof my blog post before I stick them online, because sometimes I write like a four-year-old and she kind of cleans it up for me. But, but, I, but I said, I wonder what would make me question this, the worthiness of my own life in this. What would make me wonder if it's all worth it? And the answer for me would almost probably be the same thing as Naomi. Like, what if my wife died? I might ask that question. 
And you're probably saying, oh, but you're a pastor. You're supposed to love Jesus more than other people. I do. No, I'm kidding, okay? I'm kidding. But I would have to imagine it would be unbearable pain and heartache and sadness. My life would be placed into turmoil because of what happened to me. Then it starts to really begin to click in my brain. I start to think that that would actually be my issue. My issue would actually be Naomi's issue. It's that I would have made my life about myself. When I asked, is life even worth living? It would be because I had centered my world upon myself and my own circumstances. What is going on around me? And don't get me wrong, I understand it's much easier to say that and think that when my world hasn't collapsed around me, but, but it makes it no less true. Open your Bibles to Ephesians chapter 2. I think the more in our lives that we make our lives and our happiness depending upon ourselves and our own circumstances, the more we're going to be at the whim of the circumstances that are around us. Everything beyond our perceived control, which in the end is everything because everything is really out of our control. That's why we feel like things are out of control because they're out of our control in this. And so when our lives become about us, they eventually will spiral down to a place that they're not worth living because in reality we can't control anything. The Apostle Paul says this in Ephesians chapter 2, starting in verse 4. He says, But God, being rich in mercy because of the great love with which He has loved us, even when we are dead in our trespasses, that's the word for sins, made us alive together with Christ, by grace you have been saved, and raised us up with him and seated us with him in the heavenly places and graces, so that in the coming ages he might show the immeasurable riches of his grace and kindness toward us in Christ Jesus. For by grace you have been saved through faith, and this is not your own doing, it is the gift of God. Now worth can be defined by how much someone is willing to pay for something. And God is said to be rich in mercy. If there's a treasury to hold God's mercy, it probably couldn't hold it because he has so much mercy. We are told that the gift of the God of the universe bestowed upon his value. And what does he do? He gives the life of his son to pay for the penalty of our sin and redeem us from our lost way of life. The redemption is not based upon our merit. It's not based upon how good we are. It is based upon God's goodness, upon the value that God has said that we have, that he has given to us. John 3.16, I like to call it the football verse because that's when you look down the crazies at the side of the football field and they're always holding up their you know rainbow hair and their big sign, John 3.16. Those guys, this is the verse. For God so loved the world that he gave his only son that whoever believes in him should not perish but have eternal life. Those are words of worth and value. That's what they are. The value that God has ascribed to us because of his goodness. God says we are worthy. If we are a people who live our lives for ourselves, focused on our desires and ourselves, we will always be in a place of regret. Always. But. This is the greatest but ever. But. Better than the one with implants. This is a great but here, okay? But if our lives are centered on Jesus and the good news of his hope and of his redemption, while we may still find ourselves in times of sadness and things that we don't understand, we can still live a life that is full and free. Is life worth living? I think the answer to that question depends upon what we are living for. Are we living for ourselves or are we living for Jesus? I think it depends on whether we allow our circumstances to dictate our life and define us, or if we allow Jesus to be the one who defines us. I think all of these things come together because it's Jesus who defines us as being worthy, which makes life worth living because our lives are about Him. This is why I think in school all these self-esteem classes are terrible, because what they do is they teach kids to focus on themselves. Look at yourself, look at yourself, find worth in yourself. But the more we go throughout life, the older you get, you realize how terrible we are. All the terrible decisions we make, how others hurt us and how we hurt other people. And we feel worse and worse and worse and worse and worse because we are terrible. 
This is why God is the one who rescues and restores and redeems us. There's this old book written years ago, and it was called Christ Esteem. And, and I really think that's how we've got to see it, is how God sees us. Because when we look just at ourselves, we're going to spiral down. But when you see how Jesus sees us, everything can really begin to change. And this is a story of Ruth. It's a story of God coming to rescue us. When we read the book of Ruth, you've got to see the message and realize that God is the author of life. This is why we call it the story within the story, because it's all his story. We are in the midst of his story. That means we get to turn to Jesus and say, I have made a mess of things. All of this stuff that's here, will you please make use of it? Too often when we pray, we're like, oh, God, take me out of this situation. Please take this thing away. Open up the heavens. Give me a cookie, which will be awesome because cookies are great. But, you know, give, give, me, give me a cookie. We, how often do we pray? I've made a mess. Use this for your glory somehow. Grow me in the midst of this. We don't. We just want out of it. And God says, I'm going to take those messes. And I'm going to begin to grow you and use you to what I need you to be. That's what you pray. God, grow me instead of getting me out of this. Use this for your glory, no matter what it means. Show me how to begin to use this because it looks like a disaster. And then we move forward with the goal on his glory and not our own. We don't look at our own personal satisfaction. We start to look to his glory first. Number one, it will honor him. And secondly, it will lead to joy in our lives. That's where it will have to go. It's important all this to remember the word that continues to come up over and over and over in the book of Ruth. It's this word called hased, and it is God's loving kindness. The idea is that hased is the key ingredient of why God redeems us. Hased is the key to God's faithfulness and his devotion to us. And this is then begin to seen, be seen in the people of the book. In chapter 1, Ruth shows this thing called a said to Naomi when she commits to come back to Bethlehem with her. It's a very dangerous thing, but because of her loyalty to God and Naomi, she goes. In chapter 2, Boaz recognizes this character of a said in Ruth, and he points it out to her. And eventually the entire community begins to see this. In chapter 3, Boaz shows a said to Ruth by saying he's willing to redeem and marry her. This is after somebody else has come along and said, yeah, she's not worth it. She doesn't have any value. Boaz will take his life and his home and his income and his faith and he will cover Ruth with it because of his said. In the midst of the darkness that happens in the beginning of chapter 1 of the book of Ruth, what you see is this has said keeps coming and overshadowing everything. The incredible beauty of God's has said has never left anybody during their trials. And all of their has said for one another comes out of God's love first for them. In chapter 4, it's pointed out that even through all the trials Naomi and Ruth go through, that God has never once left them. Sure, at times, Naomi thought God had left her. She even says that. Oh, he's dealt bitterly with me. He doesn't care about me. That's because her perspective was so small compared to what God is actually doing. And that's just like us. So often our perspective is so small to what God is actually doing. It's because of God's has said that he's willing to redeem even the worst things in our lives, even the worst things that happen to us. Uh, think of this. Even the things in our lives that we want to forget and get rid of that we feel like causes so much shame and guilt, God, in his loving kindness, many times says, I'm not going to get rid of that. What I'm going to do is I'm going to use that. I'm going to use that. And I could probably go around this room and talk to a bunch of you. And you could probably say in different places you never saw the end of where it ended up from the beginning. You never knew how it was going to turn out in a certain way. And God used all these crazy things for his good in your life and the lives of others around us. 
I mean, God redeems our lives and circumstances all the time because God uses it all. I always stand amazed, and I think we should all stand amazed at how creative God can actually get by bringing redemption to how creative we, we can get in our own sin. Because God just does amazing things. This is Hased. Hased is not white-knuckled obedience as life pummels you in the face. The central ingredients of this Hased is love and grace. It is Ruth's love of Naomi that makes her be there for her. It is Boaz's love for Ruth that has him be her redeemer. It is God's love for us that causes him to redeem and save us. For God so loved the world that he gave us his son. It's God's love that has him climb into the mess that we have made of this world. And he begins to lift us out of it. It is God's love that has him make these promises to us in kindness. This is not just theology. It is not just academic. It's real. This is why when we talk about all the testimonies of what God does and continues to do, it's supposed to have impact and be real. It's why I love that Christmas is just around the corner as we end the book of Ruth. Because Christmas is about the set of God. God comes in Jesus to rescue and redeem us. Ruth culminates in God's hased, not just to the people in the story, but to all of us. Naomi lost her children. She lost her husband. She thought life wasn't worth living. She thought she was going to go back to Bethlehem and she was going to die. And instead, Ruth goes with her, and God's love overshadows her. Even when she's complaining about him, God's love still overshadows her. And she will become redeemed physically and spiritually. In Ruth 4.16, it says, Then Naomi took the child and laid him on her lap and became his nurse. And the women of the neighborhood gave him a name, saying, A son has been born to Naomi. They named him Obed. Obed means servant. And the community gathers around, and they name this child. This is the only place in the Old Testament that parents or God doesn't name the child. The community does this together. Some people think the word Obed is short for Obadiah. Obadiah means servant of Yahweh. But I don't know if that's true or not. I think it means servant, and the community saw this because Naomi's life is now being restored. Obed will grow up and essentially be Naomi's kinsman redeemer. He will take care of her. She will have a life into her old age because of what Obed will do. And this all leads to Israel's ultimate redemption through their king, David, which ultimately leads to Jesus. Verse 22 of chapter 4 again, Obed fathered Jesse and Jesse fathered David. The original audience would see the good news of those words. But let me just tell you a little bit about David. King David was a great guy in some places, and he was a horrible man in other circumstances. You know what happened at the end of his life? He died. We all get that. Okay, we all get that same ticket. We all get it at, at, at some point. What happens after David is David's son Solomon comes to the throne. Then there's all these battles and all these things take place. After that, the kingdom is divided. And eventually God decides to discipline his people. And he sends the Babylonians in. And the Babylonians haul all of Israel off into captivity. Just like Naomi and Ruth, all of Israel end up in another country. And as they're going, they're probably saying, well, is life even worth living? Even when Jesus comes, they have their country back, but they've been conquered again and again and again, and now the Romans rule over them. Well, is life worth living here? And this is why I think when you read the genealogies of Matthew and Luke, they both trace Jesus' lineage through David, through Jesse, through Obed. Because Jesus comes and he is the true servant, the true redeemer. He doesn't come to restore our land, he comes to restore our souls. Why did Jesus come? Because God so loved the world. His love caused him to act in loving kindness towards us. Life is worth living because Jesus gave his life for us. We are restored to relationship. We are restored to community. We're restored to God because of the grace of Jesus. Guys, listen to me. 
everything in your life that has happened, that ever will happen, can be used by God to bring about redemption to you and glory to his name. Even when we don't see it, we must trust in the creative goodness of who God is. We must trust everything into his more than capable hands. And only by understanding this are we going to be able to step into the mess right now that is our world. I mean, I could give you a million reasons why Jesus saves, because, well, actually give you one. He's good, and he loves you. Hased. I don't need to give you 13 reasons why. I need to give you one, guys. It, it is Jesus. Jesus rescues and redeems and restores the messes of our lives. And when you're in a situation with somebody who everything seems bleak, we are those who understand who Jesus is. We get to restore hope. We get to bring in truth and grace and goodness. We get to talk about the wonderful things that God does even today in our lives. That God will bring about ultimate good because he is good. Because that's a said. God's loving kindness for us. This is why we always direct you back to communion every single week. You break that cracker like Christ's body was broken for us. You dip it in the wine of the grape juice. It reminds us of his blood that was shed for you and me as a people. Because in this we understand that God so loved the world that he has ascribed worth and value to us. He is the one that gets to say what we're worth. Not the people around you. He's the one. So we come to communion realizing that God has placed value and worth upon us, and that is what we begin to live out. That's what gives us hope, to speak about the good news of the grace of Jesus. That's why we call it the gospel. It's the good news. It has always been the good news. It will always be the good news. The band's going to come up. I said, I'm going to invite you to take communion to be some deacons in the back. And if you need prayer, if you're in a place today where maybe, maybe you have a friend in your life who, who is feeling hopeless and full of despair, let them pray with you about that. Maybe that's you. Maybe you're feeling hopeless. Maybe you have a lot of despair. They say the Christmas season is one of the seasons that, that people actually get the most depressed during because if you don't have family or friends around you, you feel very alone. They would love to begin to pray with you through that. If, if you just want to pray about different ways where you can start to be, bring the hope and the grace and the goodness of Jesus to people around you today, they would love to pray with you about that. Because we take everything that we are, we submit it to all that He is, because He is good. There's offering boxes inside them all in the back, and we give because God gave so much to us, giving as part of our worship. Uh, is there food back there? Because I didn't know, there's no table? No? Yeah? Oh, there's food back there. Maybe it's just hovering in the air. I don't know, but uh, there's no. But grab some to eat. Uh, meet some other people. Grab some of the sermon notes, and maybe this week get together. Start asking some questions. I there's there's two questions that are in there that I really like. W- one of them is, you know, w- when has someone said something to you that's totally destroyed you? You know, what words were those that that spoke negative worth and value over there? And then, what has something ever said? What has someone said in your life that has actually given you the most value you felt? And then ultimately, in the end, we must understand the words that God has himself spoken over us as a people. Because God speaks words of graciousness and kindness and hope. And sometimes God does bring discipline. But God will use all the situations in our lives to bring glory to his name and make us into the people he intends for us to be. So we can be those who get to be ambassadors for his name. It is, it is God's kindness that even leads us to the places where we repent of all the things we need to in our lives. It's his kindness, his said that leads us to those places. It's the beauty of what God does in his rescuing of us. So let's be a people who begin to speak of that hope, 
uh, giving people around us something more than, hey, buck up, or hey, figure it out, or hey, you're great. How about God has spoken redemption over you? God has brought hope and grace into your life. That is why you have value and worth. And that is what we proclaim, the goodness of Jesus. Let's pray. Father, this morning we do ask that you would take us as a people and you would remind us of your goodness, of your hope, that we would be a people who speak of the gospel, the good news of what you've done in all life circumstances around us, that we would understand that it is your kindness that even leads us to the places in our lives where we repent, where we want to change. Because laws and legalism never change our hearts. But your said and your kindness melt our hearts and return us to who we are meant to be. We ask that your spirit would come in and it would convict in the places that it needs to convict so that we would begin to grow and change and see our lives and salvation as all about you. And then as we step out into this world around us, we would truly be your ambassadors, bringing hope and redemption and grace. That we would speak of the great lengths that you have gone to rescue us. That we would show by how we live the hope that we have. That your name would be made great by how your people speak and love and serve and honor you. We ask that we would do this in real and practical ways in our homes, in our neighborhoods, in our workplaces, always steering people back to you because you are the author and the perfecter and the finisher of our faith. Salvation is found in you alone. Teach us to lift you up in all things. We ask this in your son's good name. Amen.